Genesis chapter 4, the end of 4, as we noted last Sunday, after killing his brother Abel and refusing to respond to the loving appeal of God to repent, old Cain sets out in his rebellion to create for himself a world, a life without God. Not only does God allow him, but Cain is successful in his pursuits. And yet, As we noted last Sunday, as this society progressed further and further away from God, as one generation was followed by another generation, followed by another generation from the decisions of Cain, getting to Lamech and his sons, we see that this society becomes immersed in its own perversions. By the time we get to Genesis 6, we see the sad result of Cain's rebellion. We're told that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. What a sad indictment that the Lord was sad that he had even made man. And what would soon follow? This evaluation, this indictment of this godless society. Well, it would be judgment. And yet, while the world was progressing further and further away from Almighty God. Not all men had been swept up in this tide. Not all men had been trapped in the darkness. As we're about to see this morning, God still had a faithful remnant. He had light bearers in a dark world, a group of people who willingly rejected the things of the world, possessing instead the desire to live their lives according to the truth of God's word. And before we move on, I want to set up a contrast between the results of rebellion against God and a life lived in communion with God. Because you all have to make that decision. Every human being has to make the decision. Do I want to walk with God or do I want to walk away from God? There's not a middle option. It's one or the other. There's no apathy. Because of Cain's unwillingness to repent of his sin, choosing instead this life apart from the Most High, his life was not only ruined, but we're told in chapter 4 that Cain would live his life as a fugitive, a wanderer, and a vagabond. That word meaning that he was a man without a home. And yet, what's interesting about the scriptures is it tells us that if you've been restored with God through Jesus, all three of those things we see in Cain are inverted. It's interesting. Instead of ruin, God restores your life from the effects of sin. Cain's life was ruined by sin, but if we come to God, he'll restore our lives from the ruining effects of sin. Instead of being a wanderer as Cain without a home, Peter. He wrote in 1 Peter 2 verse 11 that we now live, it's inverted, as a pilgrim. Instead of being a fugitive, a wanderer, we're pilgrims, meaning that we're headed to a specific destination. We're not left to wander through this life. We're pilgrims on a way to a destination, the city of God, the kingdom of God, to heaven. Our lives are filled with purpose and meaning, and not only that, but we're sojourners. We have a destination. We have a home. We're not left to wander, and we're not homeless. We have a destination, and that destination is heaven. 
What would you prefer? A life of aimless wandering, always filled with discontentment over a life that would never seem to satisfy, or would you prefer a life of purpose, direction, and satisfaction, knowing this world is not your home because you've been given a destiny with God in heaven? The choice is yours. Let's get chapter 4, verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom came killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day that they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Let's pause for a minute. Though Cain was the firstborn son of Adam, followed by Abel, it's likely that Seth, this third, was not the third in chronology, but instead the third in significance. Note that Adam was 130 years old when he and Eve had Seth, making it highly unlikely that this was just the third son by this juncture. We're also told that upon having this boy, Eve names him Seth, believing, quote, God had appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. While it appears that Eve may have initially thought that Cain had been God's promised savior, don't forget the messianic promise, that it would be through the seed of the woman that a Messiah would come, a savior would come, a redeemer, unique, the seed of the woman. Women don't have seed. This would be a miraculous conception, a miraculous birth. Eve initially thought it was Cain. That quickly became evident that it wasn't. It now appears, though, that Eve has come to see Abel as somehow being significant to God's plans. The problem is that Cain has killed Abel. He's now dead. So that now upon the birth of Seth, Eve comes to recognize that it would be through Seth's family lineage that a savior would be born. Seth, the name means literally appointed. Isn't it interesting that while Cain, no doubt satanically influenced to commit such a heinous act, was seeking to crush, to cut off the messianic line of Abel, that we're told after such a catastrophe that Eve, quote, look at it, I love this, Eve bore again. What a picture. Think of it in this, in this context. Seth was the product of a new birth following what? The tragic death of an innocent and righteous man. Seth, appointed, appointed by God. He did nothing to earn this status. He played no role in the process. He did nothing to deserve such standing. It was only 
No, by God's grace, that Seth was simply appointed and given the privilege of being uh, the one in which the Messiah would descend following Abel's death. How incredible it is that you and I are recipients of the favor of God in the exact same way. From the tragic death of an innocent and righteous man named Jesus. What did that afford us? The opportunity to be born again and included into the family of God. What a neat picture. The genesis of grace, this story. Now, before we begin what will probably look like a four-part series uh, through the genealogy here in chapter 5, that was a joke. Thanks, chat. I appreciate that. Now, that's, that's like we're not going to do four studies uh, and the genealogy. Uh, we're going to get through it all today. So if this is your first time here this morning and you're like, we're going to do a Bible study on a bunch of, bunch of names that lived and died. And yes, we are, but only one. Now, to set up the stage for the genealogy, I, you need to note that there are two reasons that the genealogies are important at all. You know, you're reading through the Bible. Maybe you downloaded one of those uh, read the Bible through a year plans. Um, most of them die when you get to chapter five because you're like, I can't read, I can't even pronounce these names. Why is this in the Bible? I'm done. And then you get convicted and, and then you're like, okay, maybe I'll just go to another book. And you, you, you go to Matthew and what do you find again? Another list of names. And you're like, it's just filled with names. There's a point to this. There's a reason for this. It's significant. All scripture is inspired. All chapters, every word has a purpose designed by God to communicate important truths. First, understand that the genealogies intend to bolster the historicity of Scripture because these lists provide the family histories of significant biblical characters. We understand that the Scriptures are more than just a mere story they're more than just an allegory. They're more than just a parable. You see, the genealogy establishes an evidence that Adam lived, that he was a man who actually lived, who walked the earth, who had a son named Seth, who was actually a man who lived and had another son who walked the earth, that these people, because of the family heritage, the family lineage, there's evidence that these were actual people. They're not just stories that were made up. These people lived on the same planet we do. That the same God worked in their lives in the same way he does ours. The second reason that the genealogies are important, aside from establishing some historicity, is that the genealogies substantiate Jesus as being the promised savior established in Genesis 3.15. God told Eve, it would be through her seed a Messiah would come. The genealogies establish a link back to Eve. It's important to substantiate Jesus as being the very person God promised in the garden. Following the death of Abel, God specifically reveals that now it would be through the family lineage of Seth, 
whereby the Savior would descend. Not any of the other children, because we're told that Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters. But of their many sons and daughters, God is clear it would be through Seth's lineage now that the Messiah would come. And this we find as a, as a constant throughout Scripture. That same promise gets reiterated to people after people after people. Eve and Adam and then Seth. God would single out Noah, Noah's son Shem, later Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Judah, Boaz, whittling the lineage of the Savior down ultimately to the household of David. Understand, these genealogies, these records, provide proof that Jesus was the promised Savior because he could track his family lineage back through all of these specific individuals. That's why when you get to the Gospels in Matthew 1, we're given Jesus' lineage through his adopted and legal father, Joseph, all the way to Abraham through the line of David. And why is that significant? Matthew's presenting Jesus as the king, and to be the king of Israel, you'd have to show that you're a descendant of the king of Israel, King David, and Jesus could do that. But what's fascinating is aside from the genealogy in Matthew 1, we're given another genealogy, specifically in Luke chapter 3. And not is this genealogy tracing Jesus through Joseph, but we find a genealogy instead through his mother Mary, which traces his lineage, not just through King David and Abraham, the patriarchs and whatnot, but interestingly enough, all the way back to Adam, through whom? Seth. So the genealogies, these records, intended to establish evidence that Jesus was indeed this person God had promised all the way from the beginning. Now, why is this important? In Genesis 1, verse 26, we're told the first man, Adam, was, quote, created in the image and likeness of God. And yet, according to Genesis 5, 3, we read this verse, because of Adam's sin, the rest of humanity, the offspring that would begin with Seth, would be gotten how? Look at it again. Chapter 5, verse 3. In his own likeness, after his image. Understand, this tells us here that every man would descend from the seed of Adam, would be born, marred by a nature given by Adam, one of sin. Upon birth, we are not born as Adam originally was in the image and likeness of God, but instead into the image and likeness of Adam. Meaning what? We all have fallen short of God's original design and his glory. Case in point, think of it like this. Sinning doesn't make you a sinner. It's a misconception. The act of sinning isn't what makes you a sinner. You need to understand that. It's kind of a, a foundational premise of Scripture. Instead, you sin because you're a sinner. I mean, think about it, right? You're really good at doing what? The right thing or the wrong thing? I mean, when you get your taxes, right, and you start filling things out, is it easier to cheat on your taxes? Maybe, you know, smudge some numbers? Or is it, is it easier to do the right thing? Now, doing the right thing is hard. 
I'm really good at sinning. Not so much at the right thing. Why? Because I've been born into Adam's image and likeness. I've been given this nature, this fallen nature, this marred nature. And yet, while all of us share that reality, because we were born in Adam's image and likeness, through Adam's seed, there is an exception to this. One person who is an exception to this rule. You see, because Jesus descended from Adam, yes, through Seth, but ultimately through his mother Mary, because Jesus was born without the seed of Adam through a miraculous conception, Jesus would become the only man to be born as Adam was originally born, in the image and likeness of God. As such, Jesus was not warped by his sin nature, Jesus was sinless. Why? Because he didn't commit sin or because he possessed the nature of God and not the fallen nature of Adam. Well, as it pertains specifically to the flow of this story laid out in Genesis, notice Moses includes this genealogy to transition us from the godless culture descending through the family lineage of Cain, Genesis 4, to now a godly remnant that existed in the world who were placing their faith in a coming Savior. In a chapter filled with godlessness, chapter 4, we're provided a silver lining. In the final verse, we're told, When Seth was born and had a son, men began to do what? To call on the name of the Lord. In a world growing godless by the day, there existed a group of people actively seeking God, this group of people we find recorded in Genesis 5. Now, before we get to this list of names, I do want to answer a question that often surfaces. How in the world did people live into their 900s? Did that jump out at you in the verses we read, right? I mean, Adam. Adam lived to 930 years. Now, for starters, it should be pointed out that this phenomenon, according to scripture, only existed in a pre-Diluvian world, a world before the flood. And the lifespans here remained constant. Adam, 930 years, but we're going to see that Noah lived to 950 years and he's 10 generations later. Now there's some variations between the two, but this phenomenon existed in a pre-flood world. Secondly, note, the Bible then documents an immediate decline in life expectancies following the flood. Like note, Noah's son Shem lived 600 years, which you're like, yeah, that's still a long time. But that's 300 years shy of his father. I mean, that's a dramatic drop off. Then if, if, you, if you consider that nine generations later, Abraham only lived to 175 years. So 10 generations from Adam to Noah, life expectancies in the 900s constant. Following the flood, Shem 600, but nine generations to Abraham, we're now down to 175. Moses, who would come 500 years after that, only lives to 120, which you might be like, that's a long time. But there's indications that that was viewed as being very abnormal. 
that the life expectancy just 500 years in the time of Noah probably settled somewhere between 70 and 80 years and then would continue to decline all the way up into the Industrial Revolution and the invention of, of modern medicine have we seen life expectancies begin to track back up. My point is, while God created man never to die, and that's important to note, Adam and Eve were created to not die. Death was introduced to the human condition, not naturally, abnormally, through man's sinful choices. And the day you eat of this fruit, you're going to die, right? So death came as a result of sin, not as a result of God's design, which is, by the way, when someone dies, why you have such a hard time figuring out how to emotionally cope with it. Like, there's five stages of grief, you know, with death. And all five stages don't work. We just get to a point that we get to just deal with it, right? And why is it? We weren't designed to die, and thus we weren't designed to deal with death. Death reminds us that we're broken, but also reminds us that there's an afterlife, that God came to provide life. The point here. As we see, the evidence of Scripture is that before the flood, people lived great ages. After the flood, immediately life expectancies declined. They went down. The the logical conclusion is that there was some type of ecological factors before the flood that enabled men to live long times that no longer existed after the flood. So this world before the flood There was something about it that enabled people to live long times. Afterwards, it's gone. Life expectancies drop. As we get to the flood, some of the things that follow after that, we might develop that thought in more detail. Um, Other than that, I have no idea why people live so long. Chapter 5 or 6. I'm going to butcher some of these names. I just apologize in advance. Seth lived... 105 years and begot Enosh. After he begot Enosh, Seth lived 807 years, had sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and begot Canaan. After he begot Canaan, Enosh lived 850 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. There's no way for me to make this more exciting than it clearly is, right? Cain, Canaan, lived 70 years, begot Mahel. After he got Mahel, I committed to it. I just kind of, I, I ran with it. It was Mahel. So he begot Mahel. Canaan, <laughs> Canaan lived 800. Don't laugh at me. Canaan lived 840 years, had sons and daughters, so all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died in Mahal, lived 65 years, and he begot Jared. After he begot Jared, lived 830 years. He's going to approach me in heaven and be like, dude, you butchered my name. I didn't appreciate it. But he had sons and daughters, so all the days of Mahal were 895 years, and he died. Jared lived 162 years, begot Enoch. After he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. Enoch lived 65 years, begot Methuselah. 
After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. That's cool. We'll get to it. Methuselah lived 187 years and begot Lamech. After he begot Lamech, Methuselah lived 782 years, had sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and had a son. Now, for context, just for a minute, Lamech, okay, would have been 55 years old when Adam dies, okay? So that just kind of gives you some, some context. It's not like they died and then the next set, people are still living through this. So Lamech is 55 years old when his great, 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 whatever, grandfather, Adam, finally dies, okay? We're told that he had a son, he called his name Noah, saying, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. After he begot Noah, Lamech lived 595 years and his sons and daughters, so all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and he begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, as we consider this list of names, I want to point out an interesting aspect of the genealogical record here that you would be hard-pressed to have just seen in a cursory reading. Unless you were an expert at Hebrew, you wouldn't have picked up on a subtlety that's pretty rad. We are talking about the genesis of grace, right? That the whole book of Genesis, every word oozes God's grace. That there is grace pouring out of every chapter. And you might say, well, not this one. Ah, you'd be wrong. We've already noted that names were given to children not because they were trying to be trendy. Names in Hebrew were given for meaning, for purpose, for significance, to communicate a reality. The same is true here. Let me just quickly run through the list and give you the, the, the meaning of each name. Adam, we already know, means man. Seth, as noted, is appointed. Enosh, mortal. Canaan, sorrow. Mehel, the blessed God. Jared means shall come down. Enoch, means teaching. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Lamech means the afflicted. And Noah means rest. Now what's fascinating is what's communicated. If you were to link all of their names together, let me read it for you. This is what their names in this genealogy, this is the sentence that their names put together provides. Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the afflicted rest. Whoa! And a list of names, their names having meaning, what do we find? The core message of the gospel that man, because of his sin, is appointed mortal sorrow. 
But that's, how, that's not how the story will end, right? The remedy to that sorrow will be that the blessed God will come, will come down, and will teach that his death will bring the afflicted rest. If you're afflicted this morning, I hope you know the only way you'll find rest is in Jesus. Within the genealogy, we find a hidden message of the gospel. I think that that's really cool. Now, before we move on, there is one more aspect of this genealogy that we have to kind of talk about, because if we don't, it would be a disservice. And that is the fascinating and mysterious man, the man of mystery, this guy tucked in the middle of this genealogy named Enoch. He's the seventh generation from Adam. I just want to read a few verses again. Verse 21, we're told that Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. And then it moves right on and doesn't say anything else about Enoch. Now the plain reading of our text tells us something important, something of note concerning this man of mystery. We're told Enoch walked with God. Or literally, he went away with God and was not, or literally, was nowhere to be found. Why? Because God took him. Duh. Now, in the Hebrew, this word took, it's a fascinating word. It's riveting, actually. Because the word means to take, fetch, lay hold of, seize, or my favorite, snatch away. Now, now the reason this detail jumps off the page, aside from the obvious, the mystery of it, is that seven times in this chapter, we find a phrase, don't we? It's repeated over and over and over again. We're given the man, how long he lived, the son he had, the life he lived after the son, the totality of his years, we're told, and he died. Seven times. I mean, it's repeated over and over and over concerning everyone in the genealogy. And no doubt, the emphasis of this is to let us know that in a fallen world, death was inescapable. For everyone, with one exception, Enoch. Instead of dying as all those who came before and would come afterwards, when it comes to Enoch, we're told he lived, he had Methuselah, he lived some more. These were his years. He walked with God and was not, for God took him. This reality that Enoch didn't die and instead was taken by God, this interesting phrase, is actually confirmed in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. And Enoch walks off the pages of Scripture, literally, only to resurface then in Hebrews 11, verse 5, where we're given more insight into why God may have taken Enoch instead of allowing him to taste death. We read, I'll read it for you. By faith, Enoch, who the author of Hebrews makes it clear, it's seventh from Adam, was taken away, literally in the Greek, was put into another place so that he did not see death. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. It would appear 
in a world darkened by sin, that this man Enoch provided a contrast by being a beacon, a light on the shining hill. He was known by everyone. We're told he had this testimony that he was a man of faith who walked with God. Beyond this, Enoch also pleased God. Not because of the things that he did or the sacrifices that he made. Enoch pleased God because he placed his faith in God and he walked with God. See, these were the primary motivators of God's pleasure in him. Isn't it interesting how often in the New Testament the idea of walking is used to describe our spiritual life in Christ? Maybe on your own, do a word study. Walking, walk. Just see how often it comes up all throughout the New Testament to describe our interactions. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in truth. Over and over and over again, this word walk is used. You see, walking signifies activity. Dead people don't walk. It, 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 it shows life. It denotes continuance. It's Aim is always a destination. And yet walking is rarely associated with work or exertion. As a matter of fact, think about it. Up until the last few centuries, walking was simply the most base form of human transportation. If you wanted to go from point A to point B, your only option, the most simple option, was that you walk. Like walking was the very minimal activity a person had to do to get from one place to another. Like today you might say, instead of Enoch walked with God, Enoch rode with God and was not, for God took him. He got in the car and he rolled. Now understand, a walk. A walk is not only functional. You're created to do that. But a walk can be enjoyable, can it? A nice evening, a sunrise, the beach, a walk. It's not overly taxing. More often than not, a walk is also communal. It's relational. Like Enoch was not working for God. That's not what we're told. Nor is he running to God. Instead, Enoch was simply walking with God. And by default, God was walking with Enoch. How interesting that after all of the activities involved with creation had ceased, what's the next activity we see God engaged in? I'll answer it. In Genesis 3 verse 8, we're told that Adam and Eve heard what? The sound of the Lord God doing what? Walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In a sense, what did Enoch do? He joined God in God's walk. A walk that God was already engaged in. Enoch tagged along. As such, understand Enoch. This phrase, he walked with God, it tells us that he possessed a relationship with God. A relationship that would impact his daily life. Enoch's focus was not on the activities of earth, but aligning himself with the activities of heaven. 
He would walk with God and therefore go wherever it was that God would lead. C.H. McIntosh writes, the sons of Cain might spend their energies in the vain attempt to improve a cursed world, but Enoch found a better world and lived in the power of it. His faith was not given him to improve the world, but instead to simply walk with God. Keep in mind, Enoch's walk with God subsequently determined his interactions with the world. His faith not only pleased God, but his faith in God was observed by the world around him. Note, this word testimony literally implies that Enoch was a witness to the world. Now, with that in mind, we need to ask ourselves, what was he a witness to or of? In addition to his life naturally demonstrating a walk, much different, mind you, than the way of Cain. It's interesting that the only other place Enoch is mentioned in Scripture, aside from here in Genesis and then again in Hebrews, is in Jude, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And in this passage, we're told Enoch, specifically addressing, mind you, those caught up in a godless society described as the way of Cain, we're told that he prophesied about these men also, saying, and then we're given a quote of Enoch, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things with ungodly sinners has spoken against him. Enoch had a word, right, for the ungodly, clearly. What this says is that Enoch, who keep in mind, his name means what? Teaching, was a prophet. He prophesied. And what was his message? His message intended to warn the ungodly of the imminent judgment of God. That quote, the Lord was coming with 10,000s of his saints to execute judgment on all. You know, it's really interesting that while everyone up until this point in history had been looking towards the the first coming of Christ, when Jesus would come and save the world of sin. Enoch is the first man to look towards Jesus' second coming when he would judge the world for sin. As with most Old Testament prophets who saw a future coming judgment, it's likely, in addition to seeing the ultimate end of days as referenced in Jude, Enoch was also given insight into a global judgment coming much sooner than anyone would have expected. And how do we know that? Notice. Notice from our text what changes, what happened that manifested this change in Enoch. We're told, right, he walked with God when? When did he walk with God? After he begot Methuselah. From the text, it tells us that there was something about the birth of this son that so rocked Enoch's world that it would forever alter the trajectory of his life. So what did God reveal to him? Well, as we've noted, naming a child intended to communicate a message. Enoch's name means teaching. But note that Methuselah, he names his child Methuselah. That name meaning what? His death shall bring. Well, not to give you a spoiler alert, but if you do all the math, what happened the year Methuselah died? The earth was judged with a flood. Like our text here gives the impression 
that what changed Enoch's life was a prophetic glimpse given to him by God upon the birth of Methuselah, that in that moment, we're not told how, he was able to see this future judgment of a wicked world, not just in his time, but in a future time, that it was imminent that a judgment would come the day his son died. Now, what I find important about this development is how the knowledge of such things impacted the life of Enoch. Like, not only did this reality provide clarity to what was most important in his life, he held, he held this son, he's given this glimpse, judgment's coming, he names him Methuselah. From that point forward, what does he start to do? He begins walking with God. He knew judgment was coming, and that then motivated, it provided clarity of what should be important right now, walking with God. And then what else would he do? The knowledge that there was a judgment coming provided him the motivation so that he would spend the rest of his days warning this godless society that a judgment was on the horizon. It's interesting that there are only three categories of people who existed when it came to this first judgment. As we'll see next week, you have Noah. You have Noah and his family who were preserved through the judgment, supernaturally. They're also followed by a second category, a wicked world destroyed in the judgment. So a group preserved through, a group destroyed in. However, we see a third, this man Enoch, who was snatched away before the judgment ever came. I think prophetically, we see the same three groups in a great future judgment. We see Israel preserved supernaturally by God through. We see a wicked world judged in. But I think Enoch is a picture of a church removed, snatched away. You know, Enoch, a man of faith who pleased God, a man who testified to the world of a coming judgment, was a man supernaturally removed from the earth before the judgment came. The picture is inescapable. Enoch not only didn't experience a physical death as everyone else, but he was snatched away from the earth before these events transpired. A picture of the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. We're told that the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together. That word caught up is raptura, caught up, snatched away together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And Paul says, comfort one another with these glorious words. And it's sad that we live in a Christian culture that has largely diverged away from eschatological evangelism in favor of a more ecclesiastical approach. Now, those were some big words. Let me just kind of bring it down into a layman's term. Instead of telling people that Jesus wants to save them from the coming judgment of God, most churches prefer to avoid such topics by focusing on ways God wants to improve your life today. Like in actuality, most churches avoid discussing the coming judgment of God altogether. And while I agree that it's important we communicate the transformative influence the gospel message has, not just on a person's destiny, but a person presently. That the gospel is more than a golden ticket to get to heaven, but that Jesus wants to give you life and that more abundantly today. 
Enoch does illustrate for us an undeniable reality the American church has largely forgotten. And that's this. Properly grasping the reality that there is a coming judgment, coming judgment of God, should naturally yield two things in your life. One, an immediate impact on your present walk with God. Time is short. Judgment's coming. That should change your life today. But it should also motivate you to testify that these things are coming to a fallen world oblivious to it. A world, mind you, that Jesus loves and has called us to love. We know a judgment's coming. Why aren't we warning anyone? Why do we shy away from such topics? Tragically, warning people of the end. Right? Such an approach has become synonymous with goofy, stupid platitudes. You know, Things like, get right, or get left. That's stupid. I mean, it's true. Like, you know the other one, right? Turn or burn. Man, I, I, I just hear Jesus just oozing that statement, you know? To make matters even more disheartening, the majority of people who, who herald such a message are wing nuts. And that's the nicest phrase I could come up with. You know the people who stand outside sporting events, yelling through megaphones to everyone who walks by that Jesus is coming specifically to judge the gays. It's terrible to be associated with them. I understand why many people shy away from such a message. Who would, be, who would want to be lumped in with loons or accused of being alarmist, judgmental, or fanatic? Honestly, I get the fear of some that such an approach can lead Christians to becoming overly obsessed with leaving earth rather than reaching her. I mean, the truth, right? Is that as of today, I can say these things with certainty. As of right now, the church hasn't been raptured. If it has, we're all in trouble. Two, Jesus hasn't returned. I don't know, have you seen him? I haven't. So the church hasn't been raptured. Jesus hasn't come back. And thirdly, I don't think judgment's commenced. Meaning, the church's job to be a witness of the world hasn't ended. It hasn't ceased. And yet, we also are equipped with the knowledge of what? That a judgment of God is nigh. You see, as a type for the church, Enoch does illustrate the reality that our knowledge of a coming judgment should manifest in both a greater passion for God and love for the lost. I mean, how can we honestly claim to love someone if we're not willing to warn them of a coming judgment? Enoch, he didn't yell. He didn't judge. Enoch's approach was simple. He simply spoke the truth and he allowed his walk with God to testify that there was a better life than the way of Cain. Finally, there's one more observation that I want to make before we continue in worship. While God's judgment may have been inevitable, right? As Enoch saw it, the day Methuselah dies, that judgment would come, right? Do you think it's an accident that Methuselah 
would live to the ripe old age of 969, making him, mind you, the oldest person to have ever lived. Methuselah is born. Enoch sees it. When When this child dies, judgment's coming. You see, I I think God prolonged his life to give the world all the more opportunity to repent. Like, imagine you're Noah, and there's great-great-great-grandfather Methuselah, and you're like, when that dude kills over, it's coming. We need to hurry up. Methuselah's out there wanting to help. He knows he's going to die. He's not going to be on the boat. He's up on some scaffolding, and you're like, that dude falls. We're not ready, you know? Methuselah, just sit down. Can you imagine how, how old? Like that tells us what? God's heart is never judgment. That's the very last resort. What does God prefer? That you just accept his goodness and you respond to his grace and you walk with him. You don't have to work. You have to do, you just have to walk and then enjoy a life with him. 